Hello everyone. I am so sorry I'm releasing this so late. Uh, a week to be exact. It's a week late, but uh, I hope everyone had a good last few weekends. I hope everyone had a spooky Halloween. Uh, my Halloween was for the most part uneventful. I went out with one of my close friends to take my niece trick-or-treating. It was a dismal evening. It started to rain there at the end, but the rain was actually kind of satisfying. My husband and I then had dinner with our other friends and then headed home. Later that night, while I was picking our roommate up from work, I hit a possum and still feel awful about it in this very moment two weeks later. I will say though that about two minutes before that, a big old yee yee truck had its brights on and gave me an x-ray, so I'm kind of blaming that. I would love to hear how y'all's Halloweens went. If you want to let me know, pretty please email me at downtherabbitholepodcast at gmail.com. Rabbit is spelt with one B. I had a client the other day tell me that um, he hated my purple hell and then he told me to go to hell. So that was hilarious. My husband, my cousin, well, both of my cousins, my cousin and his mom, who's also my cousin, <laughs> and I went to the casino Friday night. Um, that was a blast. I'm actually like a really quote unquote responsible gambler. Um, when I go gambling, I go in with like a set amount of money. Friday we went in with $40 and then I either make some money back or I lose it and that's where I end. Like I don't have like a hankering for continuing to gamble, which is I guess a good thing. I mean, you shouldn't gamble, but if you're doing it just for fun, I think that's fine. Uh, we went in with 40 we lost all of it. I'm a penny slots girl. I love penny slots. At the penny slot, one, I sat down after we had lost like our whole $40. We had like five bucks left maybe. Um, I sat down at the penny slot and then I won 20 of it back. So we had $40 left. And then I tried my hand at roulette. Lost $15. <laughs> so that's how we had 20 left after it was all said and done. It was fun though. My husband and I we have fun when we go out and do that kind of stuff. Um, and then yesterday I made some lingua tacos. I don't know if you guys have ever had lingua, which is cow tongue. Don't let the name fool you. It's delicious. Um, and then today is Sunday. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. Um, I did get a suggestion that said that I shouldn't give um, a trigger warning before every crude thing because, um, as that person said, I agree, it's just not necessary. So I'm just going to give out one altogether trigger warning before we start. Um, last week, we finished with uh, the Otero family, and this week, we're going to pick up from there. After the Otero murders, Dennis walked back into his house and got ready for church, where he was the church council president. Uh, just a few weeks later, he committed his second murder. Dennis saw Catherine Bright walking into her home and decided to make her one of his projects. Just like everything else in his life, his planning was subpar. On April 4th, 1974, Dennis broke into Catherine's home and hid in her bedroom. Around 2 p.m., she came home, but she was not alone. Her brother, Kevin, who was 19 at the time, was with her. Dennis rushed out with a gun and gave the same speech he gave the Otero family. 
the whole, I'm on, I'm a criminal. I'm on the run. I need money. I need food. And I need your car to get away. And then the, I'm not going to hurt you to kind of lull them into more of a calm manner. Dennis ordered the siblings into the room and ordered Kevin to tie up his sister's arms and feet. Dennis brought Kevin into the living room where a fight ensued. Dennis shot Kevin in the head twice. He then went back into the bedroom to finish Catherine off. Catherine tried to fight Dennis off also, and she fought him so hard that Dennis wasn't able to strangle her. Um, he did stab her multiple times in the abdomen, though. Although Kevin Bright had been shot twice in the head, he was able to get up and escape. He ran two blocks to his car and drove to find help. With two shots in the head, Catherine went through several emergency surgeries and blood transfusions, but unfortunately, at age 21, she passed away. Kevin was in critical condition, but he did thankfully survive. This is when the notorious letters began. In October 1974, a reporter named Kathy Henkel with the Wichita Sun received the first letter. The, uh, the letter was addressed to the Secret Witness Program and was given to the police. The Secret Witness Program is a program where you can give information to the police through the newspaper without divulging their identity. It was really hard to find just a clipping of the newspaper, but here are some excerpts from it. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. <clears throat> I'm sorry this happened to society. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up. Where this monster enter my brain, I will never know. But it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it. So the monster goes on and hurt me as wall, as society. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. Good luck hunting. Yours truly guilty. Uh, yeah, how I pronounced everything in that letter is exactly how it was spelt. Um, his letter to the son was riddled with grammatical errors, misspellings, all the sorts. So I read it exactly how the letter sat. Um, the letter was not signed, but there was a postscript. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code word for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them, BTK. You see, he added again, they will be on the next victim. So that pretty much means that on the next victim, he was claiming that he's going to leave BTK somewhere. Reader's punctuation and spelling and grammar makes me want to vomit. Uh, after this asinine letter was submitted, police asked the eagle. I saw it written as um, the Wichita eagle and the Wichita sun. So in my notes, it's kind of different each time, but it, the eagle and the sun is synonymous in this. Um, ask the eagle and Beacon's community relations director, Don Granger, to address a plea to the letter writer. And this part made me laugh. It's not, 
It's just, it's silliness, in my opinion. Um, he placed a classified ad in the papers to no avail. Um, he even went so far as to tell the killer they could contact him at home, because that would work. Like, <laughs> oh, I can contact you at home, of course, let me jump on that. I mean, it's just, I don't know if you have noticed yet, but the BTK case is just silliness from top to bottom. After that letter, Dennis didn't kill anyone for three years. According to Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University and the writer of the book Confessions of a Serial Killer, the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, this was because he simply just did not have the time. He was working two jobs, he was being a dad, he was being a husband. He didn't have the time that he needed to stalk um, or do quote-unquote research and plan his attack. He had to do this carefully, and it had to be when he had pockets of opportunity that allowed him to pretend he was doing something like library research for a course he was taking, because on top of it all, he was still going to school, uh, or him being out of town, or going overnight for a Boy Scouts camping trip. Yes, you heard that correctly. Dennis Rader used to sneak away from camping trips for his son's Boy Scout troop to go do his stalking and find the people that he wanted to kill next because he was a disgusting garbage person. Ramsland worked closely with Dennis Rader after his arrest to write her book. He told her that he was always looking. I guess he gave her a list of 55 projects that he tackled over the years. While on his murder hiatus, Dennis worked at a security company called ADT Installing Security Alarm Systems, which is pretty ironic. He also had a job as a compliance officer. He got to carry a badge and boss people around, which boosted his large ego. He enforced the rules strictly. Dennis would relieve his killings by cutting out magazine pictures of naked women and dressing up dolls in his trophies he had taken from his victims to relive his killings. There's a direct quote that says, He told me in no uncertain terms in our correspondence that this enabled him to delay his killings. He also said the public should be grateful he had an autoerotic fantasy life. Or he may have killed more people, which is exactly why I hate Dennis. He very much has this God complex for some reason. And when you look at him, it really doesn't make sense because he's um, balding. He just looks creepy. He looks the way he is being portrayed in this podcast. He's just icky. So after those three years was up, in March of 1977, he reemerged as BTK and spotted his next victim. He spotted her while trolling a neighborhood. He met a woman named Cheryl at a bar. But in true dumb Dennis fashion, Cheryl wasn't home. He then decided to take a stroll down Hydraulic Street and ran into a five-year-old boy named Steerell Fold. I realized this was a different time. It was the 70s, and the 70s was like a whole different world, which is why so many serial killers were able to get away with so much. But come on! Why is there a five-year-old roaming the streets? Dennis, for no apparent reason, showed Stevie a picture of his wife and son and asked him if he knew who they were. Of course, little Steve did not know who they were and went home. Dennis followed him home. He knocked on the door and Steve answered the door and Dennis pretended to be a detective and that allowed him to fool Steve into being led into the house. There were three children in the home. Dennis turned off the TV and turned down the blinds, uh, Shirley Vianne, the mother of the three children, came out of the room 
and of course was very startled. Dennis held Shirley and her children at gunpoint. He ordered them into the bathroom and locked the door. Dennis told Shirley that he was going to have his way with her, but somehow convinced her that it would not be rape. She somehow calmed down and they shared a cigarette and Shirley had a glass of water. While Shirley Vian's children screamed from the bathroom, Dennis tied her up and strangled her with a cord. The phone began to ring, which startled him, so he left prematurely. Semen was found in Shirley's underwear and left by her body. On March 17th, 1977, Shirley Vian was murdered. She was only 24 years old. She left behind three children and her husband, Richard. Her children eventually escaped the bathroom, but they could not give an accurate description of Dennis to the police. So he got away with it. His next victim was 25-year-old Nancy Fox. Just like Catherine Bright, he broke into her duplex. Just like the Oteros, he cut the phone wire. Uh, he then waited for her to come home. Since she lived alone, he had no problem surprising her. He pointed his gun at her and ordered her to undress in the bathroom. He undressed as well and tied her up. He started to strangle her and told her every awful thing he had ever done. And then he killed her. Nancy Fox's body was found with her nightgown beside her with semen on it, which was his mo the next day on his way to work at adt he called the local police and said yes you will find a homicide at 843 south perishing nancy fox that is correct the police replayed the recording of dennis's voice but never found a match dennis sent a crude poem to the wichita eagle called shirley locks which was an obvious reference to shirley vian i couldn't find the poem all the way for some reason. I really wish I had because it would be pertinent, but I do know that it was disgusting. After a mix-up at the newspaper, Dennis got zero publicity and this bruised his little ego, so he contacted KAKE-TV with a two-page letter saying, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? I am compelled to kill by factor X. The same factor that motivated Son of Sam in New York, Jack the Ripper in London, and the Hillside Strangler in Los Angeles. It seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There's no help. There is no cure except death or being caught and put away. A little paragraph in the newspaper would have been enough. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about my life like anyone else. Doesn't that just fill your mouth with vomit? Me too. So this is where we're going to leave off today. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, if you have any suggestions, please feel free to email me. I'll be back next week, hopefully on time. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a good day. <laughs>